Kathy Weeks is an associate professor in the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies program at Duke University. Her book, Constituting Feminist Subjects, was reissued by Verso in 2018. It looks again at feminist standpoint theory and tries to remove some of the imaginary blockages that have stymied the development of a socialist feminism. In her important book, The Problem with Work, is a panoramic study of the ways that we tend to think about and value work as a foundation not only for our livelihoods, but also our lives. In this conversation, we talk about the pragmatic value of utopian thinking, how it's become, in the years since The Problem with Work was published in 2011, notably less embarrassing to be utopian. Her goal is in many ways to engage with, as she puts it, the confining structures that police us in our homes and on the job, in our relationships to others, but it's also her hope that we will be more open to the ways that even seemingly small incremental changes can create the space necessary to pry open larger moments of revolutionary possibility. In The Problem with Work, you talk about creating a sort of feminist family. Mm. And I wondered if you could start by maybe elaborating on how you do the work of sort of distilling down from this huge archive of thinkers that you can select from um, a, a particular kind of line that uh, that lets you maybe avoid the standard traps of disciplinary ways of thinking. You know, constituting feminist subjects talks about want, not wanting to be constrained by a particular genealogy of thinking. Um, and similarly, you know, Sarah Ahmed writes in in certain ways about like wanting to produce a feminist survival kit that includes both feminist and feminist books. How for you is creating that that useful archive that Ahmed talks about necessary maybe for writing your specific brand of um, political theory? Yeah, no, it's a it, it's a very timely question for me because I'm just finishing up a a chapter that's really looking at the term archive and and trying to really think about it um, in the context of my own work because I've long been interested in this question of how do you you know, how do you read and how do you approach inspirational texts from the past? Because that's always been my method. I have a thing about 1970s feminism. And it's it's always been my source of inspiration. And in fact, it's, you know, it's to the extent that I have a method, it's about going back to some of these older texts, because this is the period of the kind of um, the heyday of Marxist or socialist feminism, where you get some of the, some of the, I still think the best work was done. And so I always go back to those old texts and I just find them really rich and interesting. And then I try to think about ways to like update them and kind of bring them into the present moment. And so, you know, I've done that with feminist standpoint theory and for our wages for housework, um, for 1970s feminist family abolitionism. And so, you know, I've always been thinking about why, you know, first of all, why are these texts so interesting to me? But more important, like, how do I, how do I, how do I bring them into the present? Um, And, you know, how do I think about myself as part of this intellectual um, tradition? So, I mean, on the one hand, I'm always, you know, finding these older texts inspiring and generative, but I also don't want to be beholden to them, you know, in any kind of personal or political or theoretical way. So I've been like trying to formulate different ways of imagining myself as part of this intellectual and political tradition that doesn't rely on like um, familial metaphors, like, you know, lineage, inheritance, um, uh, foremothers, or even, you know, identification. So I don't want to rely on those kind of metaphors. And I don't even want to rely on the notion of a tradition, which seems to assume that there's some kind of like inherent order and, and temporal relationship among these texts. Um, because I think both of those, the family metaphors, but also the notion of tradition makes me too beholden to them in some ways. And I want to, I want to be, I want to pick and choose and I want to sort of, you know, remake them and not, I don't want to honor these texts in some ways. So I've been really thinking about, 
you know, the notion of an archive as an alternative, because an archive is something that, you know, it, it's something you construct. It's not just there. It's not a tradition. It doesn't, you know, evolve over history. It's not familial. It's not kind of predetermined in that way. An archive is just something you put together or some more random, it's the way I'm imagining anyway, as a more kind of random collection of texts, but still there's a relationship among them. So when you read these texts as an archive and you read them kind of together, you find something new in each of them because they kind of echo or amplify different kinds of arguments or questions if you read them together and they kind of build on them. So if you read these three texts together, you might find something different than when you read this text as part of another archive, you know, together with other texts. So like I've been experimenting with this archive of three texts, one by Shulamith Firestone from 1971, from Donna Haraway from 1985, and then, you know, one from the Zeno Feminism Manifesto from 2016. And in some ways they don't kind of belong together, but when you read them together, like some things just kind of really jump out in a really forceful way. Um, and so that's what I'm, so that's how I'm trying to think about where I put texts together. Not so much that I, I can learn from them, but more ways that I can be inspired to think differently without at the same time, like I said, not being indebted to them or beholden to them in the way like an an ethnographer is sort of indebted and beholden to their subjects, or even a historian, I think, is indebted and beholden to the historical archive. And and I do want to like read them seriously, but I don't want to be beholden to them. You know, I want to I want to mix and match. I want to change whatever doesn't work for me. I think that is such a um, you know a, a liberating kind of methodology. This like it's almost a methodology of of irreverence, right? Yeah. yeah. And and. And, you know, there is certainly something to be said for for just being uh, for trying to subvert the traditional ways in which, you know, people create scholarship. Um, you know, I don't want to talk too much about Ahmed, but she talks about how the canon has become this kind of straightening device. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, like straightened us out. It's, it's made certain people necessary reference points. And, and your work kind of does away with that. You know, it's like Jacques Derrida in, in Spectres of Marx talking about the problems of inheritance and, you know, taking apart some of Marx's sons, these people who just are yeah. obviously truly beholden to a sort of, sort of orthodox Marxism. Yeah. But at the same time, you're not doing away with these terms. Like you have this wonderful article um, about the manifesto as a genre of writing. And you talk about how, you know, we can recuperate it if we uh, name the kind of manifesto that we we sort of desire. And you talk about how the communist manifesto has this kind of like unflappable confidence to it, this kind of, you know, declarative nature that compresses all of time into this, this kind of moment. Um, you know, the Xenofeminist manifesto, and also I, I think feminism for the 99%. Mm, yeah. In that text, um, they name this kind of wave of feminist militancy that's erupted globally and, and clearly are kind of declaring this moment to be um, something that is instructive Um, And I guess on that point, like, it seems like your work aims primarily to be instructive to the kind of, you know, strategic politics of, of trying to move forward in spite of all of these challenges to democracy. Like, you know, for example, one of your most recent articles, anti slash post work feminist politics and a case for basic income formulates your, your points in terms of lessons. When you were developing your method as a thinker and writer, how did you kind of develop that particular model of trying to instruct the reader rather than sort of dazzle us with your theoretical esotericism or, or whatever it may be? Yeah. I mean, I guess for that, I was just trying to like acknowledge that, you know, and that's a weird thing with going back to these historical texts is like, I actually, I, I became interested in basic income from reading wages for housework for the 1970s, where they didn't really talk about, you know, they talked about wages for housework, you know, not basic income, although in some formulations, it was really the same as a basic income. Hmm. But that's where I really, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I hate, you know, using these words faithful or honor or anything like that. But I wanted to acknowledge that that's where I learned about it, you know, and I kind of want to make that clear that I'm actually, 
you know, drawing a lot on these texts, even if I'm completely, you know, I mean, I think certain like, uh, you know, one of the members of Wages for Housework today, Silvia Federici, she doesn't support basic income. So, I mean, it's not like I'm being beholden to them, but I do want to acknowledge that I'm, I'm learning things. This is, the, I'm tracing my own thinking about how I came from this. And I find that sort of a useful way to sort of teach somebody about, you know, where I am is to trace the, the lineages of it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's, you know, it involves a lot of leaps and jumps in between them. So... I, I, you know, I, I had some questions about someone who is clearly indebted to your work. And there are many, many people who um, cite you as, as a, a thinker on work that, you know, is particularly like you, you give a lot of leverage um, to people who, who are struggling with these intractable problems. Um, I recently spoke with Kara uh, Daggett for this podcast. And, you know, she's a, a person who, who writes about energy in particular, and, and she's she's made this kind of impact recently with her work on petromasculinity, or this kind of productivist and patriarchal drive to preserve a fossil fuel society. And when she was charting her uh, the history of, of uh, fuel for her book, The Birth of Energy, she's noted that you know she was surprised to find herself reading um, an enormous amount of literature about this this centrality of the work ethic as something that's just ideologically, you know, immovable. That's this conceptual foundation, certainly of uh, oil capitalism. Um, and she also cites you as, as the person that allowed her to really rethink um, the whole course of our, our apocalyptic addiction to oil. Um, you know, one of her arguments is that, you know, we can't just solve the problem by moving to renewable energies unless we try and scale back the acceleration of work of productivity. Um, and she asked, she actually asked me if I could ask you a question, um, about how you think about energy. Um, it's not something that, that really comes up in your work. How do you think the acceleration of basically global capitalism, especially the 19th century may have influenced these ideologies of productivism, the work ethic, and do you see any openings for a utopian politics of post-work in the current impending and really the, the current climate catastrophe, um, you know, where, where do we go from this moment? And is there something persuasive about trying to articulate a politics of post-work in this, this moment? Yeah, no, that, that's really exciting um, to, to hear about her work. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's definitely, there's a really strong link between, you know, capitalism and it's, system of work, um, and with that, a kind of, you know, ideology of productivism or the work ethic, and then ecological, ecological destruction and climate change. So there, I think it's a very clear link. And I think a lot of authors are trying to sort of talk about, you know, what, what needs to happen with this, the work system, um, and the hours that we work and the way that we work, if we want to really deal with these, you know, these catastrophes. And so Juliet Shore has talked about some of those kinds of things too. I mean, the, I haven't really, you know, thought about it very much, but except to think about, you know, the importance of avoiding as a, as a, as a solution or remedy, a kind of, you know, ascetic values as, as an alternative, you know, that kind of ascetic denial of production and consumption. Like, I just think that that is kind of a trap. Um, and I think because it's, you know, the kind of, a, you know, that sort of asceticism, well, we need to cut back, we need to stop, we need to, you know, cut back on our pleasures, whether that be work or consumption, like that way of kind of thinking and mounting an argument is drawing on the same fuel, that ascetic ideal that gave rise to, you know, productivism and consumerism, right? It's almost like it's tapping into that same kind of energy to make this argument. So, I mean, I guess, the kinds of arguments that I'm really attracted to are like, you know, something on the order of Bastani's full luxury communism, you know, that that is the way to go. Like to try to think about rich, full lives that don't center around work or consumption, Hmm. but to think about that as a kind of wealth of pleasures rather than that, a kind of aesthetic denial. So, I mean, that's the only thing that I'm kind of allergic to in some of that literature. And again, it's, 
it's become a, um, a lesser tendency now, thankfully, that kind of, you know, asceticism that I think is tapping into some of the, you know, again, it's the fuel of other ascetic ideals like productivism and even consumerism in some ways too. Mm-hmm. There's this book, uh, again, that's put out by Verso called A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of more hopeful and seemingly indulgent language is in some ways more mobilizing than the kind of left melancholy, to use a term that you use in in your work, that we certainly see in a lot of uh, what Imre Zeman calls eco-apocalypse discourses. And and Daggett, you know, uh, clearly is is taking up your anti-ascetic argument in her book and, and admitting that a lot of the, especially in the conclusion of that book, that a lot of the eco-apocalypse discourses turn people off, that there's something, you know, uh, that works against a politics of transition in, in, you know, insisting on engaging with our inevitable doom. Yeah. Like, it's not something that really resonates with people. Yeah, because yeah. fear is politically disempowering. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, even Hobbes knew that, right? Because he wanted to disempower the masses in some ways, and fear is the way to do that. But it is really it can be paralyzing. I just don't think it's a really useful kind of political affect for, you know, for the kinds of, you know, agendas I'm interested in. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that um, you argue is this, this idea that, and, and through Ernst Bloch that, you know, hope is, is valuable. Hope is something that can be potentially um, a source of emancipatory politics and I think, you know, hope for me comes from reading these kinds of texts. I mean, Anna Sings, The Mushroom at the End of the World, similarly talks about how, um, and Alexis Shotwell's Against Purity, all of these books are really about trying to make visible um, experiments with, you know, alternative ways of living, like, you know, imaginative possibilities. Um, and and so here, I you know, I found your work on utopia so valuable, you know, like, you're, you have this idea that um, we need to kind of resuscitate utopian thinking or, or, or like wrestle it away um, from those that think it's somehow intrinsically embarrassing to be utopian. Do you think that uh, um, the kinds of solidarity we're seeing with, for example, indigenous land protectors here in uh, Canada with the Wet'suwet'en peoples rising up to stop pipelines, that there's a way in which utop- utopian thinking maybe is becoming um, more seen as at least as more practical, more a way out of our current crisis-driven times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I, I think, you know, utopia is not nearly as embarrassing as it used to be when I started talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of that, but I think you're exactly right that there is something that that is allowing people to, you know, be less reactively embracing of this claim to be a realist, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was, that was, you know, so much of the part of the eighties and the nineties. So I think that there are some openings in, and these experiments, I mean, I'm, I'm, yes, I absolutely think utopian experiment experiments are crucial um, as a kind of pedagogy, as examples, you know, maybe some of them even could be kind of scaled up for, you know, larger sort of projects um, on the other hand, I am not going to be the person who's going to sort of talk about them in some ways. In part, it's because I tend to be more of a structuralist. And so, you know, going even to the example of gender theory, you know, there's, uh, you know, some w- want to say that, well, you know, the gender binary that tries to produce us into, you know, a kind of complementary heterosexual genders is a system that's always been failing. And so, you know, just look at the examples of people who are not traditionally gendered in that way, you know, non-binary or the proliferation of genders that don't match their sex, that don't match, a, you know, up with a heterosexual sexuality. And just look at this as a way to recognize that these structures are not totalizing, they're already failing, and there's already possibilities in there, you know, utopian possibilities. And on the one hand, I completely agree. It's just that in my own work, I tend to focus much more on the confining structures that nonetheless try to enforce, even as much as they fail, this sort of gender binary. And in terms of work, 
I mean, I guess I've spent a lot of time sort of um, <laughs> raining on the parade of counterexamples just because I'm sort of interested in, particularly when it comes to like examples of post-work practices or, you know, when people want to answer that question, well, what, what, would, what would we do and what would it look like? if work was only a small part of our lives and it wasn't the center of our existence. And, and I, I find myself constantly playing the role of critiquing those examples because I think in some ways, I think we need to linger much longer and, and more deeply with the ways that productivism and the work ethic has colonized our imagination of practice itself so that when we imagine practice, like being active in the world, it often takes on the form of kind of productive activity. And so like in some of these ideas about like communist utopia, what it would look like, sometimes they sound like, well, we're going to, we're going to do art, but we're going to do it productively, you know, like it, it, it'll be serious and, and we'll, we'll, we'll want to, we'll want to do it constantly because we won't have these other kinds of and that just sounds like, well, we're going to do it as on the model of the way that we do work now. So I find myself being someone who kind of tries to take apart people's experimental examples of post-work or non-work more than, even though I recognize certainly that there are examples and that we need to cultivate them, I usually have taken the other tack just because I do think that we just need to linger longer on how, how insidious this ideology of work um, is in our culture. Um, yeah. I, I noticed that very much about your work is that there, there is a kind of restless oppositional quality um, that does away with easy answers. You know, as you say, there's, there's a, 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 a rigorous willingness to, critique these exemplary counterexamples, mm, um, yeah. you advocate something more along the lines of these partial visions. And, and there's a, a way in which you're, yeah, yeah, certainly advocating lingering longer than simply, you know, assuming that there are these available symbols of hope already in front of us. And on that point, you know, I think one of the ways in which we, we see a model of utopia uh, you know, cited today is is by gesturing to um, you know various forms of like technological fixes, um, machine learning as something that's going to crack particular health problems, uh, maybe solve the problem of renewable energy being inconsistent, like whatever it may be. These technological singularities are often cited as though um, they will just magically fix an unjust society. Um, you know, like for example, even though Uber doesn't actually make any money they still are cited as though they are this like uh, untouchable corporation because of the way in which they've really built saturation. They've kind of, you know, they've saturated our thinking in a lot of ways and, and made themselves the dominant model. And I wanted to ask you, because it is kind of a timely story about the, the successful propaganda campaign that was led by Uber, Lyft and DoorDash to get Proposition 22 passed in California. This is this is a, a proposition that uh, they almost that, that almost didn't pass that didn't have a lot of support, but there was this enormous investment two hundred million dollars invested in saturating TV and digital ad space, bombarding gig workers themselves with in-app notifications suggesting that drivers want to remain independent contractors, and a yes vote would be would be good for them. Um, and what's dangerous, it seems is that uh, executives have already said they're hoping to replicate that process ac across the country. Why was their pedagogy of productivism basically necessary to push that measure through? And what do you think the implications of that particular precedent are going to be? Yeah, I, I have to say I was kind of surprised by that, mm -hmm. you know, that it worked so well, even in this moment. Yeah, Maybe I shouldn't be so surprised. I mean, it's it's not just the kind of technophilia that, that capitalism has long kind of cultivated as this entrepreneurial myth and about, you know, the productive forces and the way that capitalism unleashes them, you know, more than other systems could. So I guess it's that, but it's also like, I, I, I'm surprised that we still accept that jobs are good 
no matter the quality of the jobs. Like it's like jobs are an unqualified good, literally, because the qualities of the job don't seem to matter. You know, when we talk about jobs programs, it's just like, well, what jobs program? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what would the jobs be like? It's like this, the astonishing success of the ideology, the capitalist ideology of work and this kind of democratization of abstract labor. So, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's like, it's all about the paycheck. That's all it is. It, do, it has nothing to do with actually what happens when you go to work every day and what you are working towards, or even how much the paycheck is given what you're doing. It's just like any job is seen to be a gift to the entrepreneurial subject who's just dying to you know kind of feed their entrepreneurialism rather than what it really is, is this meager offering to desperate workers. And that's all it is. But I'm just kind of, I have to say, I was shocked that that succeeded as well as it, as, as well as it did. Yeah, it, it was surprising, you know, yeah. um, and the idea that it, it can be scaled up, that model of that kind of propaganda yeah. model is, is unnerving. Yeah. But it seems like there is this, you know, um, you know, the, there's a book called Inhuman Power uh, uh, by, Kosin, Steinhoff, and Dyer Whitterford that talks about the AI effect, that there's a way in which like AI as this, again, like this horizon of possibility is somehow seen as synonymous with a certain utopian future. Um, and, but that book really pierces that illusion and says like, we're ignoring the material conditions under which this technology is being developed. Like it's, it's really a secretive thing. It's, it's a monopolistic uh, uh, endeavor. Um, and so, you know, uh, the idea that automation will be somehow, as you say, a gift to the entrepreneurial subject that yeah. people will just learn to um, program these machines and that will be their new jobs is part of the like this nirvana of, of an automated future. Do you I mean, this is kind of, I think, related to the question of like the gig economy um, or a society organized around the Internet. Do you see automation as in any way utopian? Uh, or do you see that shift to a, a different kind of economy that's driven by automation about really the elimination of the necessity of human labor? Hmm. That's that's a good one. Um, and, and I have to say, um, I, I guess I start with a confession is that I'm I would, you know, I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. So, I mean, I'm on the side of technology in that sense. And also, like, in in terms of these classic utopian positions, there's two sort of major texts in the Marxist utopian tradition, Bellamy's Looking Backwards, where he imagines a life, you know, a future where work is is reduced and machines are doing all kinds of things for us. Um, and then there's consumer abundance. And then the other one is William Morris's News from Nowhere, where it's a kind of like return to a, a craftsperson utopia of unalienated labor. And I guess... You know, in some ways, you know, so Bellamy's trying to like eliminate exploitation and have less work. And and then uh, Morris is about, you know, the end of alienation. And I'm definitely team Bellamy on that one, too. So on the one hand, I, I really do um, think that there is potential. I mean, it's it's not necessary, but I think there is potential in sort of technological um, developments and events. It's not really, you know, so it comes up a lot in the politics of basic income because some people say, well, we need a basic income because of looming technological unemployment, Mm -hmm. right? That technology is just eliminating work in some ways. And, you know, I actually think in some ways that is true in some sectors. And then, you know, the the capitalist economists say, yes, but people have worried about that all the time. And it turns out that if there's technological unemployment in one sector of the economy, a new sector of the economy will develop and absorb all those laborers um, so that it's not going to be any problem. Well, I think it will actually profoundly shape quite a few sectors of the economy. I I don't think it's going to eliminate work because as Benevev and others know, there's many service jobs that can't be, you know, done by robots or digitized. And as Peter Frace notes, 
some of these jobs are so low paid, there's no incentive to sink a lot of money into, you know, process to automate them too. So, but when I said in my article on basic income is that, you know, I actually think this is really not that important. I mean, like it's, I think it's like the tip of the iceberg in terms of the problems with the work economy, you know, this prospect of, you know, automation and technological unemployment, because the work system is such a mess in terms of being in an insecure way to distribute income and an incomplete way to distribute income. Cause a lot of people are doing productive things that are not getting, you know, rewarded with wages that, you know, technological unemployment, you know, to the extent that it happens, is just almost a kind of a minor problem with the system. And there's, you know, larger kinds of problems with it. So in the end, you know, I kind of avoid the question because I just don't think it's quite as as pressing as, you know, the media would suggest in terms of, you know, in relationship to other problems with the wage system and, and work. That's so interesting that you say, like, there, there is a media fascination with this, mm-hmm. with this looming technological future. Yeah, I like that you kind of provide a check on that and say like there are more pressing issues. I think you know the um, the pandemic has started to make that visible. In April, the government launched the Emergency Response Benefit or the CERB, um, and it was meant to you know mitigate the the social effects, the economic effects of the pandemic in this country and the United States is now facing a, a paltry uh, relief package that the Republicans have fought tooth and nail to really make inadequate, right? And, and to ensure also that, you know, corporations have faced no, will face no liability whatsoever. Um, and in this country, similarly, I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that um, as the CERB kind of fades away, a lot of people in this country made more with the benefit than they did from their actual jobs. And beyond that, the, the federal government has also recently voted down a wealth tax um, and the universal notion of a universal basic income, despite the fact that the Canadian public generally supports it. But what's interesting is that what they've done is instead promote this widespread system of subsidized childcare. I don't think it's like gone through yet, but there is this report that's been released by the Center for Future Work, which estimates that between... Uh, something like 360,000 and 700,000 women between 25 and 50 years old could join the labor force over 10 years as part of this national child care program is is developed. So there's like some recognition, however oblique, of the you know fact that women do the bulk of reproductive labor or you know caring work. But I wonder like how you are decoding these seemingly incremental steps toward providing people with a basic income. Like the pandemic is making these moves necessary, but they're not really, we're not seeing any sort of breakthrough. How do we make room for really utopian thinking in the COVID moment? Oh, that's so interesting. Just because from a U.S. standpoint, just the idea that candidate would offer some subsidized childcare feels completely utopian. Um, that just mm. would not happen here. Um, yeah. I mean, I think after the pandemic, I think it really is. I think that the, it's really been uh, amazing how the work and family system has been, you know, so many of its fault lines have been exposed in really kind of dr- more than I would have imagined in some ways, because it's always seemed kind of obvious what the problems with the work system and the family system are as, as, this, as the main systems we have for distributing income to people, right? You either have a job, you get paid, or you share it with other people in your family or support some members of them like children. Um, and, you know, it's always been a incomplete and precarious system. And I I think it's just really been revealed um, in the ways that it just can't support people. Um, And then also this question of like, what's essential work that that is coming up, I think is fascinating, because most work is obviously inessential. Um, And, you know, again, any, any, any way that we start asking questions about the qualities of jobs, I think is really important. I mean, I just think that's a way to arm people with critical tools um, in that way too. So, I mean, I do see a lot of opportunities in this moment, 
for making some of these steps. I mean, some of these steps in and of themselves might seem like losses because you only got this and not, you know, a regular, you know, income paid to people. And I, I think that's true in some ways, but I just think in politics, you have to think about some of the steps and some of the, 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 the concepts, right? So the concept of essential worker, for example, that the way that these concepts, that the way that they get spread are really enabling some critical thinking. And part of politics is about making these concepts and spreading them, you know, so that people have them available to think critically about work. So, I mean, let's see, part of the way that I think you have to think about political change is on a longer temporality, and we don't like doing that. I mean, we want to think about what we're going to get now. And I just think that if you're thinking about anti-capitalism, right, and anti-patriarchal capitalism, you have to start accepting the realities of longer temporalities, that we're talking about long-term change, and you have to think about how that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually, I'm not willing to dismiss some of these you know, minor reforms as, as defeats Hmm. or not only defeats. I mean, I think some of them also generate some kind of new opportunities to advance different kinds of arguments um, and enable people to think kind of more critically and maybe more imaginatively about their present situation. Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, and this is again, why I think your work is so instructive, right? Like, um, language matters. The steps and the concepts are kind of in lockstep with one another in a sense. For example, in, in your, your recent anti-slash-post-work article um, where you talk about the pursuit of you, you know, basic income, you, you, know, you really insist on this idea of like trying to move past, in some sense, getting hung up on the dichotomy of reform or revolution. They're terms that you just say, I reject, you know, like, and I think that's so um, refreshing in a way, uh, because I get caught up a lot of times in my discussions with people uh, on this, this question, you know, whether incremental reforms are better than just like outright doing away with the structure as a whole, as though that's available to us. So I think this kind of almost pragmatism is, is interesting in your work because it's not sort of like a, an idle pragmatism to use a maybe weird yeah. phrase. Like it's about, you know, trying to reckon with the, the the facts, the fact that, as you say, the only way capitalism will likely be able to sustain itself is through basic income, if you consider the kinds of crises that it faces. Um, and then you acknowledge that basic income is not the final goal. It's about, uh, as you kind of just articulated, opening up new ground. And, and so I guess it, to kind of tease this out a little bit more, why do you think it's necessary to identify the short-sightedness, basically, of seeing battles over basic income is something that can be achieved through a single win. Like you mentioned, you know, Andrew Yang as, as a potentially as like one of these leaders in terms of like promoting basic income. Do you think there's something specific about Yang that makes him in particular problematic? I'm hoping you can elaborate a little bit more basically on this. Yeah. I mean, my problem with Yang is, well, both the, the income was set too low and you know, how much the income is, you know, at what it said, you know, and I'm talking about a minimal livable income um, that maybe particularly if you, you know, join up with, you know, some other people, you could actually, you know, survive without, you know, working for money, although probably most people will want to supplement it um, by working for wages. Because if it's just, if it's just a small amount, it's just going to subsidize low wage employers in the way that kind of food stamps in the U.S. now subsidize Walmart and other low-wage mm. employers. So, I mean, I, I think it it matters, you know, really in important ways how much it said it. And I think his was too low. So that's part of it. But I think more importantly is that, you know, that's not how we're going to get the kind of basic income we want. It's through a leader who's going to kind of impose it from the top down. Because in order to get the kind of basic income that we need, which I think is a minimal livable income, it's going to require a lot of pushing from a coalition of kind of armed movements because not armed, literally, I meant, you know, 
um, ready to, you know, do kind of discursive battle. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, if we are going to get it, I just can't imagine a scenario where it won't first be instituted at a very low rate. And the way that we get it the way we want is to keep pushing, use that as an opening and keep pushing and pushing and lobbying for a, a minimal livable income. And that that's just not going to happen from that kind of top-down model. You get a candidate who's going to kind of usher it through. I think it really, it has to have a lot of sort of, you know, grassroots momentum and, and leverage behind it. Um, so, I mean, my problem is not so much with Yang as with the idea that you could elect a candidate who's going to somehow, you know, push this through and, and that that's going to be the, the political mechanism rather than coalitional social movement being the mechanism. Um, yeah. And this is something that um, resonates with me, certainly, like the idea of um, trying to do away with, uh, you know, politics as spectacle. Politics is really predicated on having a like a charismatic leader like that. That mm-hmm. seems to me a really uh, it's it's been shown to fail in a variety of ways, you know, like, and this is something you talk about in relationship to um, Obama to some extent. The, the the election of Barack Obama was seen as somehow spontaneously uh, uh, producing a, a kind of progressive future that no longer had to be fought for. And I think at least this time around, um, with the the compromise that the Democratic Party made in going with Biden. There is, it, it seems like a palpable sense on the left that, you know, now that he's in office, the point is to push him. Like you, you talk about how, you know, there are compromises perhaps that need to be made. These signifiers of hope are valuable to inspire what you term utopian longings. Um, but you still need to evolve a politics beyond that, right? Yeah, it, it amazes me every four years how many people get sort of... Um, not just that they take presidential politics seriously. It is serious. I mean, you know, it's important to get Trump out of office. Um, it is serious. But how much they end up sort of kind of this cult of personality develops, even on the left, in ways that I always find kind of mystifying. It's like, how did that happen? But, I mean, it's important. But it's, you know, this is an individual, you know, inhabiting a very limited kind of office. What are you imagining is this, you know, individual is going to do for you? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in your work, you really argue that we need to recognize the value in, in trying to develop new vocabularies for articulating how our time can be better spent. Um, you know, and, and I find that really valuable. Um, compromise might be necessary in certain moments, but we do um, need to maintain that kind of utopian spirit, as it were. Um, and I guess on that point, uh, you know, one thing that you note is it about uh, basic income is that, you know, it is this kind of coalitional thing that it, it does produce broad solidarity. It seems to be a persuasive demand. Um, and, and you actually link it to reparations and the argument for reparations. That's something that that's a connection that I have not typically seen made. And I just wondered if you could expand a little bit further on that point. Why are reparations and basic income linked from your perspective? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a couple authors who, who who link them. I mean, one way I think that it makes more sense, you know, you know, thinking about basic income as a way to at least address racial wealth and income gaps. And so reparations would be one way to think about that. And I think the people who are talking about it more often in ways that could be linked to a kind of reparations model are those who argue um, not for a regular remunerated basic income, like a social wage, but as a kind of stake, one-time stakeholder grant. And so that a certain age, somebody will get a chunk of money will be there, you know, there, there as a stakeholder in this economy that you will get this. And that might be, that might be a way to think about slowly remedying a kind of racial wealth gap. I've not that been that interested in that kind of model because I really want to think about basic income as a as a as a remedy for the failures of the wage system. So I really want it paid as a wage to really sort of highlight that that's what the problem is. And and I suppose it could sort of alleviate certain amount of the, you know, the racial income gap, but I think, you know, 
part of this is the the arguments that are made to support it. And I think you could make a reparations kind of argument as a way to support it. I think it would work better um, as a link and support for the stakeholder grant than the basic income. But but there have been, there are some authors who are doing that. Um, I'll have to I'll have to do more research. Um, I wonder if we should talk a little bit more about your work on um, gender in particular, the family, this notion of abolishing the family. Um, you know, you've you've written really forcefully on this subject. Um, you're generally kind of antagonistic to normative ideas of what counts as a family, and I think there's a lot to be gained by you know advocating for that kind of antagonism. Like for example, you write that quote heteropatriarchal family may function as a haven in a heartless world for some. For others, it's a sad and dangerous sight. Um, and you cite the 2008 UN report on femicides as an indication that something is deeply wrong with the model of this kind of matrimonial codependency that neoliberalism really is, is founded upon in many ways. Um, here in Nova Scotia, we saw the largest mass shooting in Canadian history happen this year. Uh, a man with a history of domestic abuse and a penchant for the police went on a rampage after collecting grievances for years. Um, and people have been trying to wrestle with this, um, you know, this this trauma. And there's now a public in- inquiry that's happening uh, into the handling, really, of the case by the RCMP. Um, but there's also a contingent of people who really think that it's important to look at this tragedy from a, a feminist perspective. And I wonder, like, from your perspective, how can rethinking the cons- the kind of constraints and the structures of the heteropatriarchal family lead us into a future of nonviolence? Would you say feminism is about this form of advocacy, like recognizing that traditional masculinity is a violent institution and that we need to move into um, a nonviolent future that recognizes that? Yeah, I mean, the literature that I'm interested in now in, in thinking about um family abolitionism, as they, they called it in the 1970s, um, focused, and, and so it's kind of the more Marxist, socialist, feminist literature that focused less on masculinities, although I think versus, you know various toxic masculinities are central to all of this, but tried to think about um, the institution of the family as a kind of, I don't know, a, that, that violence is exacerbated in the kind of hothouse conditions of the the small enclosed nuclear family unit where it's you know it's so isolated also in the sense of being under supported or unsupported as a site for all of the kind of reproductive and caring labor that happens in it um, and this sort of gendered you know the history of it's kind of as a patriarchal heterosexual unit I mean I think you know, Barrett and Macintosh in their, you know, very famous um, um, book against the family talked about, you know, they call it the antisocial family, you know, the nuclear, you know, heterosexual family, because it's, it kind of like, it, it, they say it sucks the juices out of any other kind of realm of sociality, because our, our social life is supposed to reduce to, you know, kind of work sociality and then the family as the center of our, you know, sources of intimacy and contact and connection. And again, that's just, it's too heavy a weight on such a small and fragile unit. You know, the site of, you know, it's supposed to be our, our deepest intimacy, but also of labor you know, where the children are a personal property. I mean, all of this seems to me to be a recipe for violence. Um, and, and I think that the couple form at the center of it is also wildly overburdened, um, particularly when you start talking about this kind of complementary or uncomplementary gendering of classic models of masculinity and classic models of femininity that are constructed to have very little in common right? They're supposed to be complementary in that sense. So one can do the domestic work and one can work for wages, for example, but they seem to be very incompatible in the way that they've been constructed and then forced to live with this idea that the couple, like that the couple form will, you know, the, that your partner will serve, is supposed to serve as your best friend, your sexual partner, 
your partner for raising children, your partner for caring for the elderly, your partner for social reproductive labor, you know, it's just too much. I mean, it's a ridiculous kind of ideal. So it's not surprising that it just cracks under the weight of the disappointment and rage and anger um, that it produces. So, I, I mean, I really do think that our models and ideologies of the family are implicated um, in, in some of the violence that happens there. And, and certainly the, the kind of privatization of the family that gets fetishized. And so you imagine it as this safety, you know, this, this haven of safety. And so the fact that it's actually where most of the violence takes place becomes hidden both literally and figuratively from view. And I think, you know, there is still uh, an enormous amount of sort of attachment to it. That's what's interesting. And and you often express this puzzlement in your work, like, you know, why isn't there more uh, investigation into the kind of structural roots of our unhappiness? Um, and and decentering the family comes up in your work, even decentering the child. It's it's something that you insist upon, but you're, you acknowledge that um, the family is, even even though it's a deserving target of reform, as you put it, it's also very difficult because the family is still foundational. It's this, you call it a rhetorical temptation. Um, you know, so I, I think people people should read read your particular take, I think, on the family. It, it could really pry open this kind of space of critical reflection. Um, yeah, and, and again, it, it is difficult because we're so deeply, you know, our desires for family are so long, you know, have mm. been cultivated for so long. And so they become so deep. And so, you know, when I try to think about family abolitionism, I don't, I don't mean this as an ethical project. Like you should live differently. You know, you should want something different. Like, cause I just don't find that useful or even, you know, um, legitimate, but but, and this again is following Barrett and McIntosh and the antisocial family is say, well, they want to transform not the family, but the society that needs it. Mm-hmm. And I think of that as a really important way to conceive the politics of family abolitionism. And so, and again, individuals need it because, you know, in some ways it's all we have besides work. Um, but I think society needs it too as a privatized system where social reproductive labor, the labor of taking care of ourselves, we can go back to work the next day, the labor of raising a new generation and taking care of the older generation. Like, like the family still serves as the way that most people are recruited into households where this labor gets done. And then the family also assigns, you know, the different labors to the different genders and it naturalizes and privatizes all of that work that gets done there and recodes it as non-work as labors of love or something else. And so, I mean, if individuals need the family society really has been, you know, profiting (laughs) off it in really tremendous ways. So, I mean, I really think the, it's important to kind of expose that and to try to like, like I'm interested in trying to think of ways to provide the material conditions for people to move out of families or to make other kinds of choices. Like, so, you know, a guaranteed basic income, shorter hours, Um, you know, the provision of other forms of housing that make living alone or a different kind of group configurations possible. Like all of these are the material supports for people to kind of make other kinds of choices um, and to kind of experiment with other kinds of household configurations. And so, you know, family abolitionism is not directed towards individuals and their current desires. It's about trying to think about creating the material conditions that would allow other kinds of desires and relations of intimacy and care to flourish. So maybe that puts less burden on, you know, uh, you know, attacking the attachments that people now have to their families. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, there's this way in which your work is about exposing a kind of unfreedom. 
like saying perhaps we need a form of, I think you use the term transvaluation. I think a lot of the time uh, in the in conversations among people on, on, the, on the left, there is the sense that like crisis is an opportunity to push things forward, like to push a particular um, discourse on, you know, for example, abolishing the family or, um, you know, trying to defund the police and reroute some of that money into the community. Like yeah. in the United States, there is this kind of brewing crisis within so-called affective labor, um, or at least a sense that there's something about, you know, the gendering of immaterial affective social labor um, that makes it especially, uh, you know, important in the context of COVID. For example, I, I was watching PBS NewsHour last night, and they were talking about the so-called she-session, um, this recession that's particularly impacting women, uh, as opposed to the so-called man-session caused by the 2008 financial crisis, the like decline or, or disappearing <laughs> of like, I guess, construction work and these kinds of traditionally masculine jobs. The story goes, at least, or the statistics suggest that um, something like a quarter of women in the U.S. are considering leaving the workforce, that so-called people-intensive jobs are disappearing, and that those jobs are typically uh, occupied by women in like retail, leisure and hospitality, and so on. Um, and in the context of this report, there was something really striking. One of the women that they interviewed um, you know, talked about not feeling like she wasn't contributing to her family at all because she was doing all of the family care work um, and not making any sort of wage. Um, the crisis is bringing these, these social realities that had been invisibilized to the foreground. But it's a question, I guess, of you know, whether uh, we will seize the moment on some level and, and reckon with the ways in which we can either, as you put it in your article, life within and against work, um, just reinscribe these rigid gender categories and say like, that woman is failing her family by not doing both all of the care work and, you know, like making a wage. Um, or, you know, as you say, kind of challenging that, you know, challenging it and, and, and in particular, the gendered organization of labor. Um, do you see any value in this, this current crisis uh, in, along these lines? Or is it, is it really just a question of, you know, emergency measures, the exigencies of capitalism kind of demanding women do, do both? Yeah, no, that's interesting. And that one example is super complicated because she's obviously doing the, you know, the same kind of thing for low wages that she's doing for a family. And yet, you know, the even the low waged version of it seems like something rather than the labor that's not wage she's doing doesn't seem like anything. So it, it's particularly complicated there. And I think this, you know, it should be said too that this she session is also because you know, in this situation where, you know, kids aren't going to school is that, you know, you need much more caring labor. And if women are making, if, you know, in these woefully underpaid jobs, you know, they're going to be the ones more likely to, to quit because they're not making enough to warrant, um, you know, the sacrifice. So, I mean, I think that's, that's part of that, that, you know, that story of women leaving work, it's leaving very low waged work because, there's no alternative for the for the caring that has to be done in in those families, but I I don't know I I mean I I think I've been hearing a lot more about you know how much work parenting is, um you know because there's been this sort of like you know the, again this this model of intensive parenting has become generalized it used to be you know just the model for the professional managerial classes to you know, create enough social and, you know, communicative skills in their children so they can pass on their own class status to their children. And it was sort of that model, but now it's become, you know, the general template of what good parenting is supposed to mean, which means most people, you know, who are working long hours in addition to parenting are going to fail by all of these sorts of measures. And I think that finally during the, the pandemic, when on top of everything else, they had to help educate their children, it's finally become, you know, something that people are talking about, um, is that this caring labor and particularly child taking care of children is an enormous amount of work and that all of these employees are finding it difficult to do both. And it's the first time I've heard this, you know, reported in the media, you know, more than just, you know, once or twice. So I think there is a a kind of moment for for recognizing both 
the the unwaged labor that's being done. But uh, more interestingly, and I think your example of that one person might be a way to kind of push this is is the is the arbitrariness of what kinds of practices we get paid for and that we don't get paid for, right? You know, because maybe the content of her job is the same thing that the content of her work in the home. And it's sort of random that one get, earns a wage and the other doesn't. I mean, it's the same sort of socially necessary kind of valued, skillful practice that's required for the reproduction of society, which is required for the productive system. And yet, I, I mean, I would like to be find a way to talk about how random it is that she only gets paid for one of those jobs and not the other. Um, the puzzlement that you express so often, you know, is about trying to kind of question the, the seeming absurdity of it. I, I noticed too, like recently, um, when I went to search something, Google has like a little link at the bottom uh, that, you know, takes you to a video that they put together um, underscoring the frequency with which this year people searched uh, search things with the, with Y at the front of their searches. That's amazing. Um, it's a little bit incredible, right? Like, and I, I wonder if in this context, there is sort of more room for for questioning that, you know, the, the frequency with which people are searching why, you know, why are people protesting is one of the examples that they give, um, you know, suggests that there is a desire to understand why things are changing. Um, you know, you write, for example, that the question of whether this foot in the door incremental approach to political change is worth the risk is not only an important question, it's maybe the critical question. So like just that fact that people are searching with why might be as you say, a wedge to help pry open things further. Um, but you also suggest in that same turn of phrase that, you know, you could break your foot yeah. trying to get your foot in the door, right? So um, you can drive a wedge and then uh, not necessarily kind of, you know, push things successfully forward. And it's a question of, it seems like it is it is nonetheless still this question of of language on some level, what alternative politics we can actually articulate in the present moment. Yeah. I think uh, uh, certainly the pandemic being this unprecedentedly global uh, moment is is at least uh, helping us focus in particular on the you know question of what supports human survival. And it's it's this interdependence, as you say, it's like it's about uh, what kinds of work we consider essential and making those things visible. Right. And it's grocery store workers. I mean, who would have thought that before <laughs> that that would be recognized? It, it turns out you know, the logistics of getting food to people is essential. And it's not something anyone ever really thought about it in the same way. So that is an example too, of this, this kind of opening and this sort of possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the, the question of, of food is something I've talked about with Elaine Power on this podcast. Um, and like food is a question of fighting for basic income, a question of human dignity, a question of not forcing people to make these impossible choices between whether to eat and, you know, whether to buy a birthday present for their kid. Like these are the kinds of questions we shouldn't force people to, to confront. Mm -hmm. um, and I think expanding the language of health in particular might be, um, you know, a pretty profound way of like, this is something I've, I've focused on a lot in my, you know, kind of career as a teacher and a writer is, is how we can, you know, move past so-called healthism or individual ways of thinking about health. You note in your collaborative article on precarity that the language of health has really been contaminated by biopolitical governance. Um, and it seems to really only provide a really fraught basis for articulating a politics of like interde interdependence. Um, specifically, you know, you write that, quote, health has become so tightly sutured to measures of productivity and complicit with workplace wellness programs as to be basically useless for our purposes. Um, and I wonder if we could connect this to this kind of broader epidemic of anxiety, depression, even exhaustion um, in the current COVID moment. I mean, there are all these reports that are pointing out the link between, for example, fatigue and workplace injury. And these come at the same time as we get books like, you know, Ariana Huffington's The Sleep Revolution, the detail how you can cultivate better sleep and be better workers and all this stuff. Can, can maybe politicizing our shared lack of rest be a potential site of solidarity? You know, yeah. you talk in the problem with work about like daydreaming as being something that's more interesting than dreaming because it tends toward world improvement, toward justice in some sense. 
but doesn't the capacity for daydreaming too rest on us getting enough rest? Yeah, yeah there's a great book by um, Jonathan Crary, 24 hmm. 7, where he actually, um, and he, so it's like capitalism is 24 7. We're always going, always going. And he thinks, he wants to think about sleep as an act of resistance. Hmm. Which is pretty smart, you know, in some ways, you know, that, that thinking about it is the only way that you ever get an exit or reprieve from it. For sure. Um, well, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, you've been super generous with it. I really appreciate it. It was uh, like a little intimidating putting together these questions for you. Uh, your work is, is really staggering. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. And thanks for reading so much of my work. I, I was surprised that you cited some of those articles. And it was, it, I mean, it's, it's, um, I'm honored. Thank you. Well, I like to do my homework. <laughs> yeah, no kidding.